Sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to a brand spanking new episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Oh, hey, I'm Nate. I'm feeling pretty energized this morning. Really? Yeah. Yeah, and I happen to I happen to be talking to my good friend Aaron. And your uh, internet's working pretty well. Well, that's because I'm finally back home. Oh, uh, you are home home. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Drove all day yesterday and uh got back into Tennessee last night. I've uh, been spending the morning unpacking and reconnecting here. So, yeah, good to be wow. home and good to have a solid internet connection. How does it feel? <laughs> it feels great. I, here's one thing I have noticed about recovery. Uh, recovery thrives. I do best during recovery when uh, I have established a healthy routine. And anytime I step out of that routine, I, I, I struggle for a while until I establish a new one. Mm-hmm. And uh, so six months in Florida, it did take a little time to get a decent rhythm down there, but I did get a good routine, but but uh, I, nothing like what I have here at home. So it's really good to be home, be back. I'm lo- really looking forward to seeing my brothers in the Columbia meeting, the face-to-face meeting, and uh, yeah. So nice. yeah, good to be home. Well, we've got some adventures coming up. We're going to we're gonna push this out. You're, the fact that you're saying you just got home will be relevant because this won't be put out like months later after you've been home. Because <laughs> we got to talk about some upcoming things. Yeah, uh, yeah. Samson Harbor, we are, we are trying to get uh, in-person times, especially for uh, guys who are in virtual meetings, to be able to get together face-to-face, have some some deep times with each other and taking some steps in their own journey. So we've got a number of things coming up. Uh, it looks like a very small handful of people will be hanging out at the actual Harbor in just a couple weeks where we're going to try mm-hmm. to have a, a Spartan weekend there. Okay. Uh, and then we have the 48 hours of frankness in Grayville, Illinois, which is just between St. Louis, Indianapolis, and Louisville, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for any guys in that area, there, uh, you and I are going to go up and have some fun doing that. Yep. And then we have the walking, seven days of walking and walking through the seven pieces of the path, one a day, <laughs> in England. <laughs> yeah, my uh, June 11th through 18th. So yeah, that's uh, that is going to be just free. I'm so stoked. 11 through 17, I guess it is. So stoked for that. I, I tell you what, Aaron, I did not announce a registration deadline when we opened registration for this thing, but we do have to finalize who's going to be there. And so registration deadline, March 31st, 2023. That's the very last day that you can register to go uh, walking with Aaron and me in England. So I want to bring up something with all these things. Uh, uh-huh. I am, I am horrible with money for these types of things. Cause I just mm-hmm. want guys to get together and have these experiences with God and each other. And so, man, I, 
I hate that there is any cost. And then you got travel costs on top of that. And yeah, like the England trip is a, that's a big one. That's a big it is. step oh. for someone to decide to do. Yeah. And Unless they already live in England. So if, we've got some guys from England who are going to join us. Yeah. Yeah. You British dudes, come on, get over there. But <laughs> I want to throw out for, for all of these, uh, these opportunities we're trying to create. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't want money to be the reason that guys can't come. Right. We are trying to keep this as inexpensive as we can to keep them going and to run them. But uh, right now, some of your friends in the uh, technical world are trying to kind of set up a hub where you can pay what you can and then set up 10 bucks a month, 30 bucks a month, and just pay it off that way. Oh, cool. So that you know, hey, I I can I can do this. I can experience this and it's not going to be this financial hardship where it's like, great, my soul's a little lighter and I'm struggling to pay the mortgage this month. Mm-hmm. Um so just know that that is available and we will do anything we can to just get you there and hanging out with guys. That's like my it. spiel. That's all I got okay. to say. But yeah, guys, <laughs> Uh, registration deadline uh, for England. What was it again? March. March 31st. 31st. So the end of this month. So if you've been on the fence, get off the fence. You can't sit on the fence for a long time before it hurts your butt or your balls. So fences aren't the place to live. <laughs> I, I, don't know. I, I had a picture in my head when I said that. <laughs> yeah, so did I. And it was very disturbing. <laughs> so... So, Aaron, uh, you, I was really looking forward yesterday to uh, joining the conversation with our guest. Uh, for one thing, I know he's, you know, he's really familiar with the Pirate Monks. He's been a part of the Samson Society. He's also just really a leader in uh, the field of trauma recovery, addiction recovery, and he has his own personal story, a lot to bring. I was so looking forward to it. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I tried, man. I dialed in with my hotspot while in transit from somewhere in the wilds of southern Georgia and could not make it work. Uh, yeah. But, I, yeah. I was sad you weren't there. Uh, this conversation was very enjoyable. Mr. Yeah. Wendell is a genius. And not afraid to talk about fascinating and hard and important things. So I loved it. And you're just going to have to tune in like everybody else. But for now, everybody else is already listening to it. And you'll hear it in just a moment here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast, sitting here in a parking structure, looking at the face of Wendell Moss over in the Pacific Northwest. How you doing, Wendell Moss? Hey, doing all, I'm doing all right. Doing okay. <laughs> uh, you've, you've got a great voice for this, so this is perfect. <laughs> Thank you. I've been told quite a bit, many times that I should be in radio and I'm like, oh, oh well. oh well you're stuck being a therapist a teacher uh a man who brings 
people to a place where they can connect the dots of their story and find out where that intersects with the gospel. So I guess you're doing enough. Maybe. I don't know. I think so. Uh, I, I would say a lot of people in my life would say I'm doing enough. And certainly my wife would say I'm doing enough. <laughs> so tell me, how did you get to this place? I, we're always fascinated by how therapists become therapists, but then you became a teacher of theology and psychology, bridging two worlds that many people don't know how to bridge. So how did you end up here? Yeah. Um, well, I, uh, after I graduated um, from Eastern Illinois University in 96, I actually went into campus ministry. I worked, I was on staff with, um, with InterVarsity for, okay. for, for years. Well, it was also during that time where um, I had actually also began to deal with um, part of my own story. And at the same time, I was still dealing with my own addictions. Um, and actually, it was right around that time, I think I came across uh, a Samson Society probably way back then. Okay. Um, well, and it, but it was through um, then finally addressing issues that, that were coming up um, around abuse that I felt like um, I became a Christian while I was in college. And then um, it, it was kind of it got to a point where God began to bring that stuff up. I finally needed to address it. It was beginning to hinder my ministry. And so I began that work. And what that led to was, I mean, I was discipling students on campus. Mm-hmm. And I'm hearing them begin to tell me their stories. They're now talking about addictions that they're having. And so I kind of found myself in that realm. And that was a need that they had. I'm also doing my own work. And so it was kind of, things were kind of blending together. My staff folks who I worked with were, were kind of like direct certain students to me. And, and and so something was being birthed. And then I was asking what I ever consider becoming a therapist or going into counseling. And I thought, no, well. Um, so was, was uh, the uh, idea, before we skip ahead to that, was the yeah. idea that you were going to keep doing campus type ministry or church type ministry? Was that kind of where your head was at? Well, I think my head was, I didn't see myself becoming a therapist. So it was kind of like, I was going to continue to do campus ministry. That's mm-hmm. what I love to do. And, and I actually, I didn't see myself going back to school. So that yeah. was a big, that was a big one. So, and, so in that, before we go to yeah. the therapist part of the story, were you working? Uh, Cause it's a, it's a huge statement that you're working with students on their stuff while you're working out your stuff. Yeah. So were you in a safe staff environment and a safe Christian culture environment where you yeah. could pull that off? Yeah, well, actually, I um, I found a local ministry, um, a phenomenal ministry in Champaign, Illinois, that um, that dealt with abuse and dealt with addictions. And, and I literally, um, um, at 2.30 in the morning, I was hurting so bad until I found out about this ministry. I didn't know anything about it. And I wrote a desperate letter to this ministry. And about maybe five days later, I get this letter. I get a letter back from them. I sent them a four page letter. They sent me a four page letter back. And, and the letter was a letter that just, that didn't shame me. And it, it finally, like God used it to find, invite me to step in my stuff, step into my own stuff. And so I literally, um, um, after getting home at, at that ministry, I finally, I was willing to take 
a 30 minute trip um, every other week to go and sit, um, sit with this group and with this man and finally nurture my own soul. Mm. Yeah. So that, that opens some doors. So let's take it one step back because it's relevant to where we're going. Yeah. You said you basically became a Christian when you were in college. So where did you uh-huh. grow up and what was that home environment like? Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. That's where I'm from. Um, and, um, you know, my mom, my mom and dad, uh, my the youngest, the youngest of three. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I think from the outside, um, we were pretty much known as a you know, really strong family and things like that. But what was really true, um, is that, um, you know, I, I grew up in a home where, um, you know, I had a, a dad who could be really angry. Um, and um, I actually, from five to eight, um, the age of five or six, um, was experiencing uh, abuse by a neighbor. And um, and it was something that I had to really keep silent. I couldn't I couldn't really talk about. He was a friend of our, we were friends with their family and and it was something that, that wasn't talked about, but eventually my parents um, discovered that was happening. Mm. And my um, parents' response was essentially to blame me. Like, why did I let this happen? Oh, wow. And how, so, how old were you when they found out? Uh, I was about six years old. Okay. So it had, it had recently started and they found out. And yeah. did it was... Was that the extent of how they dealt with it, or did they? Yeah, um, the the I, the conversation. Um, I was brought into my mom and dad's room one particular morning, and I walked in the room. And my dad was sitting on the on the bed and just kind of like he's kind of waiting for me, and um, and he kind of had a straight look on his face. And I was ter- I remember being terrified as I walked in the door, and I walked in the door and he kind of said, "Hey, uh, shut the door, shut the door," and I just stood there just motionless. And he just kind of squinted at me and just kind of said, I heard what happened to you. Um, why'd you let that happen? And I remember just not being able to say a word. Um, and, and what I really, of course, wanted him to do is like, son, are you okay? Like, yeah. that's what I remember. Like, son, are you all right? What happened to my boy? Yeah. Um, and so I remember just wanting to be on his lap, but his face said, his face told me, don't even step near. And I didn't answer him, but then he asked me a second question, and he says, I "Hope it was a statement." He goes, "I hope he didn't. You didn't like it, did you, son?" Mm. And I just froze. I didn't respond, and that was probably probably for about eight, ten seconds. And then he just said, "You can go." That was I it. Walked out of the, I walked out of the room, and the discussion was never to be had again. But wow. what also happened was shame became normal for me in that moment. Yeah. And how much, as you look back mm-hmm. and you've worked through your story, mm-hmm. how much did, did that become a piece that uh, a puzzle piece that you put in every other puzzle always had that piece shoved into it throughout your oh. life? Oh, my friend, um, I, uh, that reliving that moment kind of set me up to what I would never tell anybody my story. Because um, one of the things as a, as a little kid, one of the things that I always was aware of was people people's eyes. You could say anything to me, that's fine, but I would always look at your eyes. Mm. 
And if I didn't trust your eyes, I, I would. So what I grew up always being afraid to receive that glance that I got from my dad. Mm. And, and, and so I, I would never I, tell him the story. I think you just said that you relived that moment with your dad over and over. It sounds like you relived that moment even more than the trauma moment. That um, that was, I mean, what's actually true and, and even what I've done a lot of times, the response to the abuse is often more abusive than the abuse itself. So, yeah, that moment, I worked hard to not relive. Mm. And so, therefore, I would not risk telling the truth about my story because to see that look again was just, I mean, because my as a little kid, um, I was a kid who, who loved to be enjoyed. I loved being liked. I was loyal to my friends. And so being enjoyed was a big thing for me. And I would even work hard to make you enjoy me. Mm-hmm. So with that being said, to do something where you didn't like me or you didn't enjoy me, I'm going to avoid it. And so kind of getting older, that would mean I'm not going to tell you the truth because I don't want to. If you know me, you won't like me. So let's unpack that from your experience over the last number of years. And we'll loop back to how you became a yeah. therapist. But yeah, yeah. what you just said is, is so important. And I think we all need to be educated a little bit by you knowing that, I mean, this is one reason that I generally don't like women who are going through domestic abuse to go to their church because uh, the church's response is usually just doubling down on yeah. that trauma. Like, okay, well, yeah. what can you be doing differently? Are you giving yes. them enough sex? Well, you better yes. make sure you don't get divorced. Like those are all the first things yes. which just crushes them. So tell us a little bit more about how the response to trauma can be worse than the trauma itself. And how can we develop skills in our responses to other people disclosing painful traumatic issues? Yeah, I, I think when, I know for, like for me personally, when it came to telling my story, I think like when I go back to that moment with my dad, is that I wanted I wanted my dad to see me. I wanted my dad to, to hear me. I wanted I wanted to have an experience where I already felt ashamed. And I didn't want to be shamed any, any further because um, it, it was like if what I came to know is that um, in that moment with my dad and not wanting to relive that, I remember wanting so much from my father at that moment. But what was also true when it came to um, my abuse, I know this could open up another category, but when it when it came to a, a abuse, it was almost as if often I, I received more, more kindness even from my abuser than I did from my own father. Mm. So that and so to experience shame from my dad it just made it all the more painful because he was the one I wanted rescue from. Yeah. I think when people take the risk to tell their, tell their stories and they actually relive the shame all over again, after taking a big risk, that is none, that is nonetheless re-traumatization all over again. Mm-hmm. When they trust it and they've taken the risk only to be made to, be shamed again, whether, and that could be by, well, you need to go read your Bible 
or you need to you need to just do this 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 and this and this and you haven't even heard about the impact um so so even that kind of response feels dismissive and again it could it could leave you just re-traumatized all over again and it's funny you mentioned the eyes before because i i remember um a friend of mine was going to tell his small group for the first time that he had same sex Mm -hmm. attraction Mm -hmm. and he was literally the way he described it is I'm going to look at their eyes and see if they flinch. Yes. Even more than what he wanted to hear from them was to see if they pushed away. Is he still safe? Is he still beloved? Uh, So that's, that is an amazing thing. Let's also address Something Mm -hmm. your dad said that is that we just need to knock off the table for everyone who hasn't been through sexual abuse and clear up for those that have the question. Did you enjoy it? Mm -hmm. There is so much shame for people that have especially gone through long term abuse where their bodies respond because their bodies were meant to respond. So maybe they get erection, maybe they have an orgasm and then it's like, well, then I wasn't abused it. I wanted this speak to that, please. Mr. I can, I can. One of the things that I always talk about is this, that part of my story where I wasn't, I was an ambivalent boy sitting right there in that moment, because of course, if I say no, then, you know, I may get him to like me, but also something's not true. Mm-hmm. And But what I just told you uh, was that what was true was that, and this is often the heartbreak of abuse, and that is often the abuser can be more, can have shown more kindness than the caretaker. And that's how they've groomed them. That's how they gained them. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and so for me, it took a lot of work for me to finally be able to answer my dad's question, honestly, because what was true was the answer was, yes, I did. Because in my six-year-old mind, it was kindness. It was tenderness. It, 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 I mean, I, I, he gave me signs that he was, that he was enjoying me. Mm -hmm. And, and so at that point, yeah, I, I know something's wrong, but I'm also caught in that. Wow. He's actually sees me. He's paying attention to me, and so, so it took a lot of work again for me to finally answer the question. Of course, I did. Of mm-hmm. course, that six-year-old body did, mm-hmm. and getting to the point even more to be able to go uh, uh, again. Why would it not? Why would that six-year-old desiring body not enjoy? It? Mm-hmm. And that that did not speak to something wrong with you. That spoke to all of the right needs that you had and the right functioning biology that you had, but that somebody else was exploiting that, which is how you enjoying and being nurtured by that in one way does not take away from the other or diminish that. Yeah. Yeah. And and that was was a lot of the work that I had to do. Like I, I, of course I had to acknowledge, man, the, um, where where my little body was exploited and 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 the pain of that and and I would always say that my abuser man was wrong as can be mm-hmm. and 
and how will I hold that six-year-old little boy's body that that would have said, oh, but he's meeting something in me. This, this kind of comes down to our theology of sin, where sin is always painted as such a dark and evil, some viscous black goo coming into the corners of our lives. Yeah. And it's like, well, oh, come on. If sin was not fun, sin would not be hard Correct. to to battle in our flesh. Correct. But but that just seems like we're not supposed to say that for some reason, but it seems more harmful not to say, no, this is all packaged in something that we desire at our core. It's yeah. just the thing that's hurting us. Yeah. Well, and I think to your point, to you know, one of the things that has, that has kept, I believe, keeps us and has kept me so much in, sh- in shame is that I couldn't tell the truth. And mm-hmm. I remember the first time, I'm serious, the first time I was able to tell the truth about what we just talked about, I was able to say yes to my father's story. I remember weeping mm. because that was something in my body that just kind of, <sighs> I mean, I felt my, I'm, I'm, I, I remember I almost feel like my heart could have jumped out of my chest. And I, and I remember having that sense that even the spirit was going, good job, son. Mm, yeah. I mean, I, I remember just weeping like, oh my goodness. And the person I said it to was smiling at me. Mm. And I'm like, what in the world is this? I, rem- I remember so there was something about, can we finally tell the truth? And when I think about scripture, and I think about Jesus and those very words, I know the context of him being the truth, but there's that sense of the truth really does make us free. It really, really does. We, I mean, we're created to be able to say what's really happening. So that's what comes to my mind as you say what you said. Yeah, yeah, you're your body had been carrying it that whole time. Oh, and it, and and again, and the shame just it just got deeper and deeper and deeper, and of course that fueled my addiction more and more and more to to cope. And yeah. in, in a sense, uh, yeah, my pornography my pornography gave me the, the attention that I needed. My addiction gave me the attention that I needed. Yeah, well, the false intimacy, I assume you were in control of what the fantasy reaction to you was. Oh, yeah. And, and that's so the thing. You... I, I, that, that world, I can control the remote. I can go make it go backwards, forward. I can, I can control it. But the, but the reality and the real world, I can't control. And so I'm going to stick to more with that control. And, and I remember just feeling always in protection mode of that little boy. Yeah. Well, let me, uh, we're, we're jumping away from your story, but I, I want to touch on something, uh, we've in the, in the last eight or so months, we've certainly had a lot of, uh, Allender practitioners of storytellers on, we've talked about Mm -hmm. sexual trauma and physical trauma. You mention in your little bio about racial trauma. And I mm-hmm. wanted to hear you talk a little bit about that. But before you do, I want to make it messier. Okay. The second that I hear racial trauma, mm-hmm. I think of, well, I thought of, of women as well, that there are different groups of people that have had trauma mm-hmm. and because of their gender, because of the color of their skin, 
because of their sexual orientation. But certain groups also try to give trauma to people that haven't had it or give uh, a context that isn't necessarily that person's context. And racial trauma is something that as, as I was living with two older black men in the inner city of Los Angeles, right after Rodney King, I was watching a lot of uh, people handing my roommates context from their experiences or what they felt. And so it seems like this is a, this can be a messy and muddy thing to like unravel. Okay. Yeah. That's what I'm throwing out as you, I want yeah. that answered too within whatever you're about to say. Now you can say whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. So often I think what's really true is that often when the topic of racial trauma comes up, it's often people, people often think that, okay, we're, we're automatically talking about people of color. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's always like, okay, we're going to, so we're going to be talking about uh, black people. We're going to be talking about Asian folk. We're going to be talking like, that's who we're talking about. And we're not talking about this phenomenon that lives within with lives within this continent. That that if we're talking about we're talking about a trauma that has left no one unscathed. Okay. And it and it has erased the faces of all of us. And I think often, even when I talk to my white brothers and sisters and you say, where's the trauma? They go, Oh, how were you hurt? And and that's a kind of a I'm like, when I hear that, I go, Oh boy, here we go. Uh-huh. And it's like, oh, okay. And and I go, do you know? Do you know the history, European history of this country? Do you know how? Do you know the first Europeans that came to this country? Do you know how they came? Do you know that they came running away from their from their own persecution and trauma? Do you know that they that they came here and created a system, um, essentially what, what we've often called whiteness. And it's not, it's different from being white. It's not a hate for being white, but they created this system where you're no longer able to be Norwegian. You're no longer able to be Irish. You can no longer be Italian. No, you are to become this white systematic systemic group that, that essentially is against the, the native and against the other group, but you cannot be differentiated. Now, so what, what, okay, yeah. before you move on, yeah. when and how do you see that happening? Because you definitely have those times in early New York where you got the Irish who are being looked down on, like it's already ratified. Mm-hmm. So at what mm-hmm. point are you seeing that it's like, no, no, we're taking away some of those barriers? Yeah, yeah. Well, because I, I think, again, if people continue to see racial trauma as only people of color, Mm-hmm. Then that'll shape how they deal with it, because a lot of times they, they if, if people realize something that has impact has impacted them, and if you read, um, I don't know if you've heard of Resma Menicum. No, um, my grandmother's hands, powerful, oh, but yeah, he yeah, does yeah, a lot yeah. of work. Yeah, so um, work with Resma, and he, and one thing he he says a lot is, and he said it, I was with him in October, and he said something powerful, and it was disturbing, and he said, until until. Until white brothers and sisters also see see it as an, as as their issue, as something that they have been popped by and hit by, and their life is on the line by, then they won't bring change. 
until they see it as. And so with that said, if we don't see racial trauma as a as, as a phenomena that has left no one unscathed, then I don't pack how you engage it. Because if you think it's just about me, mm-hmm. then you'll either try to appease me or you, I mean, I, 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 I've heard, I'm sorry, and I feel mm-hmm. bad for you. It's like not helpful. Yeah. Um, but I, but I, and it doesn't last long. Right. I mean, I've been part of the Promise Keepers movements. I've seen it, done it, and I've seen the, the cries and the tears, and but never the twice shall meet ever again. Yeah. And it doesn't have, it has moments of impact, but it doesn't have lasting impact. So when we talk about racial trauma, I think we have to talk about how do we talk about it in, a, in such a way that involves anybody, everybody at the conversation and understanding that, oh, this is a trauma that had, that is in the DNA of this country and hasn't left anyone unhurt. You're saying stuff. I'm sure that a lot of people are scratching their heads like, okay, yeah, I'm not sure. So, so let's get practical. You help yeah. me understand. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a lot of relatives that I was in contact with. It was really one yeah. grandma that I spent a lot of time with one that I spent a little time with and two cousins that I grew yeah. up knowing. And they were all down in Los Angeles and, Hollywood. So I knew that grandma well, and she lived with yeah. us at the end of her life. She was from West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I researched later, found out she was married by like 14, really poor Appalachian, like white trash world. Mm-hmm. And then she ran away by like 16 to New York city, became a flapper, met my grandpa who worked on building stages on Broadway and they came to Hollywood. But just a sad, there was one cousin of hers that treated her well from the stories I heard, and he died working on electrical lines. Um, okay, so this this is a part of my family that I know. So how do I start to understand the impact of where where I came from and how that's kind of not something yeah. I felt I had to deal with? Yeah, one of the things, one of the uh, one an exercise that I often take my um, I've taken a lot of my students do. It's a pretty popular um, thing. I don't know if you have you ever heard of the uh, "Where I'm From" poem. You've heard of it before. I don't think so. Yeah, it's by uh, uh, George um, uh, Georgia Lyons, um, and she basically created this uh, poem where. Uh, there's an example of it online, and then she created a template where you could actually could do this and actually fill in the blanks and check some certain questions. And what it does is it helps it helps people to consider and sit back and finally realize, okay, where am I from? What has what has shaped me? How have I come to be who I am? What if what what if, what what traditions are in me? What um. Um, and, and I think, first of all, I think a lot of people just aren't even curious about where they come from. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I found in this, just even this exercise alone, for people to have to be intentional about engaging where they come from, I think that's often the first step is, are you even curious about where you come from? What's Because again, your story, your, even your, your ethnic story is full of traditions, conversations, people, 
I mean, the poem even actually talks about phrases that you know so well. So there's a sense of arresting you to see where you come from. And I believe that's the first step. Because if you're not curious about where you're coming from, you won't be curious about where anybody else comes from. Well, I I think you're touching on something that at least in my experience, and I feel like I am not alone. Uh, I am a Euro mutt. And so all of that just kind of gets shrugged off as uh-huh. like, oh, it's melting pot, America. Uh-huh. It has nothing. But then when uh-huh. I was born and raised in California and had dear friends who are Mexican, I love Mexican weddings. They are just off the hook with cultural mm-hmm. celebration. Mm-hmm. Um, black friends that mm-hmm. it was important things of Africa were important. The way the uh-huh. house was decorated when I was living mm-hmm. with those two men was important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it felt like everybody got to have a culture, which is why I, my, my ex-wife, we would go camping. And if there was a group of people that was not like us, like from another country, looked different, she would get upset. She's like, now you're over at their campsite all the time. Like, I know, but I'm just fascinated by anyone who has a culture. I don't have a culture. Uh-huh. Uh, and and so I feel like it's very interesting that I was never, I don't think I've ever in my life had a person say, hey, wouldn't it be cool for you to discover things about your lineage and uh-huh. traditions? And, and, do, and do, you hear the, do you hear the trauma? You don't even know where you're from. Mm-hmm. Do you hear the marks of your of, of particular culture being stolen? Being said no, and and again that's that and again that's a trauma, that that that's it. Well, um, and it and it yeah. breeds it breeds contempt because I've been culturally orphaned, so screw anyone who's trying to make their cultural past something that I have to be inconvenienced by. You, I, I, I honestly, I don't think you can say it better. I don't think you could have said it better. And honestly, I, I really appreciate you saying it because I think what you just said, I, I'll be honest with you, I don't I I I haven't imagined, imagined many years that I have been doing this kind of work that I have been a few times where I've heard someone be that honest about what they just said. Mm. Be that honest and say, yeah, there's something about because I where my work with students and and especially churches. Often heard, I don't have a culture. I don't have a culture, and you kind of hear, you kind of hear something in that, like, like you said, mud. Like even that kind of phrase, I'm a mud. Mm-hmm. That that has, that has a grit to it. Like I'm a, like I, I don't know who I am. I'm just kind of mixed up, mm-hmm. and and it, but it just points to essentially what trauma does. Because in some ways, it, it, it feels it feels fragmented. It it, it feels. It, 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 it kills your curiosity. I don't even want to know. But at the same time, I love what you just said. It has a little bit of kind of a contempt to it. Yeah. Well, it, it, on the on the honest, positive side, there's jealousy that comes. But when jealousy can't be consummated into something good for me, then it becomes contempt against people. Yeah. And I, if I like, again, out of envy, envy, there's a contempt can often be born out of envy. And I think sometimes, I mean, I've heard, you know, I've often felt like some of our brothers and sisters where I almost feel like, are you, as long as you're co-opting my story so that you will have a heritage. And it's like, 
No, you can do all you want and you'll you'll never be able to eat enough of mine to have a sense of your own. You'll no, never you'll, be you'll, yeah, you'll it will never happen. My feast will never fill you. It will never ever happen. So uh, but then you're kind of speaking counterculturally here. I know. Uh, <laughs> I just have to state these things explicitly. It's my job yes, here. Wendell. I love it. I uh, love it. Uh, the the countercultural piece is maybe. I, I mean, there's there's two that come to mind immediately. One mm-hmm. is the push that everybody just becomes the same, yes. and you're saying the curiosity of the beauty of who I am and where I'm from, which might be different than yours is not something mm-hmm. to be spurned or pushed aside. Yeah. Yeah. But then the second part is that we take in the whole story and that's also not right now. If certain people were to talk about white culture, again, it's not the culture of where white people came from. It just goes back to slavery and saying, this is your culture. But uh-huh. somehow in the exploration, an honest exploration takes in for any group the beauty and mm-hmm. the horrors of where they came from. Yeah. Because if you reject either one of those, then you're not going to come out to a satisfied or honest place. You're still just being right. dishonest. Yeah. And I, and I love what you're putting out for, for one, I think. I think what you end up having to do, if you begin to search where you're from, then you have to consider, uh uh-oh, then white culture kind of becomes this vague thing now all of a sudden. What's that mean? Do do you see how that even came into be? Like, white culture, what is that? Who? It's something, it's out there, but you really can't grab it. it. So it becomes this, this ambiguous thing. And then secondly, you know, when you say, you know, we're all the same, we're all the same. Like, I, I, I hear that and I go, well, yeah, here the trauma is reenacting, reenacting all over again. We're all supposed to be the same. But I think also it's also traumatizing because I, I remember uh, I remember years ago when I was at the standing in the gap back in the promise keeper days. I mm-hmm. remember um, this this person ran over to me, this this um, this white guy and he was and I, and I got the intent and he goes oh brother I love you regardless of your color and I just looked at him like okay <laughs> okay. okay all right and, and, but it, but but again it was under that whole idea uh that we're all the same and when I hear when and when I hear that I hear a running from our trauma because if we're all the same uh, then we don't have to do any, we don't have to do any work. We don't have we, yeah. we all can try to make ourselves feel okay. Well, it it takes away my personhood. It's like that old saying: "You're exactly. special, just like everybody else." Exactly. Well, awesome. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Well, and it, it it takes away it takes away Psalm one thirty nine, and I was just um, reading that psalm to, with um, some um, with a group of folk, and and one is I would like to say is that God Psalm one thirty nine to me. God said that I was fearfully and wonderfully made. He knew me yet while I was knitted in the womb. That passage just underscores that he was intentional about who he made me, the color he made me. And if I attach that to Revelations 
and the and the and the and the, the coming kingdom that will hold many many tribes of every tongue and tribe, and so we won't all be the same there either. So so when I hear us talk about the same, it again that feels like that it, it often has a nice intent to it. But it is actually a traumatizing statement because often if everybody's the same, somebody's standard is going to win. And we're all going to be judged according to one standard. And so therefore, many faces are going to get missed again. All right. I'm going to throw out something that just popped into my head that I have certainly never talked about on the show and rarely talked about. But it was a it, it was a strange and hard moment. When I was adopting my son, I went to, geez, I had to go to so many hair seminars. Um, <laughs> I know. People don't get it. People don't get it. Uh, Good man, for you. Well, those, I had to be prepared. The The retwist appointments alone for my son. Uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. That's, uh-huh. I, I need a separate account for that. Uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> and... <laughs> Let's not even get into women's hair. But anyways, uh, so yeah, I, I had to go to three in the United States and I went to one in Africa. And at this one uh, thing I was at, an all-day seminar, there was a husband and wife. He was the head of Black Studies at, I think, San Jose University. Okay. might have been Santa Cruz University. We were in a, a house right between the two. And then there was the hairdresser there named Veda, who had been hurt a lot with the name Veda by mean kids. And, um, and she talked about that at one point, as we were talking, small group of people and this man that, that was the professor from the university was one of those guys that you're just like, Oh, this guy's so smart. I just want to talk like I want to all day, just keep going. And he brought up the importance for, us white parents who would be raising black children to make sure that, that our kids get to be in relationship and see other black people in their community to make purposeful efforts um, so that they, so that they know and get to participate in black culture. And here's what I said. And I ended up getting in a ton of trouble for it. And it, it, it felt like an honest question. I said, I don't know what you mean by black culture. Are we talking mm-hmm. about hip hop music? Are we talking about early nineties rap music? I need to make sure they have an NWA cassette. Are we talking about you who are a professor somewhere? I said, I don't know what white culture is either. I don't know. Are we talking about trailer trash people? Are we talking about Princeton professors? Like, I don't know what white culture is. I don't know what black culture is. But I do know there are certain people I would want my child to be with of any color and certain I would not. And when I said that, it just crushed poor Veda. And she said, how dare you say black people don't have culture? Which I was like, whoa, whoa, I just said you've got lots of culture. That's my point. And it just turned into this very chaotic conversation that was totally uncomfortable. But it felt like what I was reaching for and searching for was some of what you're talking about. But tell me what you're hearing, picturing that very uncomfortable adoption, pre-adoption seminar (laughs) that I wrecked. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, I, I think one of the things that I, I know good and what you run into is that you're talking about uh, you're talking about a people that has been snatched away from from the home, a people where we've often been told that our that our culture is not good, mm-hmm. and there's been such a dismissal of of our culture, um, or there's been a lot of stereotypes about our culture. You know, our culture is all you know it's all about NWA. Mm-hmm. It's all about you know, um, you know, gangster. I mean, that's just kind of that's all about that's. So there's so there's something about how our culture is often um, um, interpreted and or dismissed. Mm-hmm. So when I heard you, when I heard you, um, and and. and I, I, I kind of went, oh, uh oh, mm-hmm. because when I, I, I when she, I fit her response, I wasn't surprised at all. Mm-hmm. But again, you run into the trauma of how our culture has often talked about, or or it's or is totally dismissed. Mm-hmm. So both have it, and I think you ran smack dab into it. So. The I, I feel like a positive thing for people of any any culture is to have a curiosity about themselves first so they can you be curious about other people and that we don't dismiss other people being curious about us that we open ourselves up to letting them know what what we see in ourselves is that what you, you're talking about you better you better believe it I, I i promise you even in my work as a as a as a therapist um i mean and and, and you know the word you've been you've been in the kind of even what what pirate my consensus society we there is a sense that if you it's going to be very difficult for you to take someone further than you've gone mm-hmm so, so if I if I translate that into this conversation, and even and even on my work around racial trauma, a lot of my work has been okay. I promise you, and I teach this to my students who want to become therapists, um, and I teach a class on this social and cultural diversities. I, and one of my things is okay. I promise you, if you have dismissed your own culture and have no curiosity about it. I promise you, if you have someone of color coming to that office of yours, I promise you, you're going to dismiss them mm. because you don't see it as relevant. And you're gonna, and, and how, and is it gonna be easier for you to say we're all the same? And that's a much easier world for you to live in to, than to have to hold that, you know what? What if it's much more complex than you're making it out to be? We don't like complexity. We like linear. Mm. And if I can avoid complexity at all costs, I will. That's why we have our biases. Our biases help us hold our world together. So we like yeah. to hold on to them. Yeah, biases hold it together. Stereotypes help us streamline. I can yeah. jump over the information and you just don't have to think it. about it. You just kind of go, "Oh, yes, this." But to have to to have the whole complexity now, now I gotta now all of a sudden, oh gosh, I actually have now have to consider. How does my black son's hair work? Mm-hmm. I mean, I have seen. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I I, I knew of some dear friends. They adopted a black a black a black uh, um, born to go. They were brother and sister, 
and and they actually they took pride in it but therefore you couldn't tell him anything so i promise you you know i asked, I asked him like how do you do her hair well i wash her hair every day oh no come on now that's no that's a lack of edge that just hurt me just then but you know but you already know you know you don't watch you don't you don't watch uh, wash Afrocentric black women's hair every day. It dries, and her hair looks so dry. Yeah. And I and, and and the thought of going. Have you ever thought about? But again, if we're all the same, mm-hmm. here it is. If we're all the same, that's how it leaks out. Yeah. You won't be yeah. curious about. That little girl's hair, you know what? You actually may have to go and learn how to do her hair. You actually may have to learn how to go do braids. And how to moisturize her scalp. Yeah, what you thinking? I'm <laughs> that's great. You're you're a good therapist, Wendell. Uh, <laughs> I, w- I was just thinking, okay, if I'm in a conversation with someone trying to be curious about where they're coming from that immediately puts me in a position, which from the way I was raised, especially in the church, I listen to people to come to a judgment about what they're trying to say and what my response ought to be, which means that curiosity gets one step, maybe two steps before I feel a pressure that I'm supposed to agree or disagree with some overarching thing and not just listen to their story. Yeah. how do we overcome that? How do we listen without needing to come to a conclusion? Well, and uh, I, I just want to make sure I understand your question. Um, so when that, say, say it one more time, I just want to make sure I'm grabbing it. I phrase it differently, and and I think kind of what's happening in the country over the last few years with all the strange riots and the Black mm-hmm. Lives Matter thing, mm-hmm. uh, it's nothing new. Like I said, when I was living in Los Angeles, right after the Rodney King stuff and uh, riots mm-hmm. and the uh, affirmative action had just been taken away as well at that time. There were just as many heated conversations about topics as now. It's nothing new. Mm-hmm. However, because mm, maybe it feels like there's such a division, like I'm supposed to be for something like Black Lives Matter or I'm against it. So uh-huh. then when I, if I'm going to start asking a person, being uh-huh. curious about their story, it uh-huh. starts to fit into news soundbite categories that I then think I'm supposed to be on one side or the other. And so yeah. it only goes so many steps before I'm not in their story. Now I'm trying to figure out. And, and as a Christian, you're supposed to declare what you think is the truth. If you don't hey. declare it, well, then you're just agreeing. Mm-hmm. With mm-hmm. So yeah, about how we get past that to actually letting curiosity last longer in the story than perhaps as yeah. a Yes, and I'm going to go back to a statement I made just seconds ago. You are not going to do well in this conversation, in, in, at least in a way that feels sustaining, that feels that, that, that feels like it would have longevity of healing. Again, if you are not willing to handle complexity, if it has to be binary for you, if you want, if you if you are committed to uh, how you've held a particular group, if you're committed to that, then you're not going to go further. Because honestly, I'll be honest with you, there was a day where um, in these conversations, 
I I would I would feel that commitment. And I would continue to try to have conversations, try to persuade, try to persuade, try to persuade, try to persuade. And as I got older, I don't do it anymore. Mm. Because when I sense, okay, you feel more, you want to hold on to it. You want to hold on how black people look. You want to hold on. Like that's what's making your world work. I'm not going to, I, I'm not going to sit here and try to continue to persuade you. Um, that Because that, I'm like, like, that's not my work to do. But I, that, I, that's, I, I love yeah. that confession. That's a confession to make. I, I need a I need a t-shirt that says I have been committed to reducing you to a news meme. Sorry about uh-huh. that. Uh-huh. And, 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 and I think and that's a strong word, but I think that but I think if we talk about biases, I think we have to we have to talk about what have we been committed to. Mm-hmm. What are we committed to? And what is going to be hard to uncommit to uncuss to uncommit. Now you got to handle complexity. Now you got to get countercultural. Yeah. So the uncommit often has a price tag on it. Well, and we have a we have an exercise that we do at Samson Retreats called the Promise Revocation Sheet, where we uh-huh. talk about the danger of making promises. That if yeah, I keep yeah. them, I become self sufficient without the spirit. If I mm-hmm. break them, then I go back to shame. So what value is there in making all these promises? I'll be a better husband. I'll be a better dad. So we actually go through and uh, in writing, unpromise certain things. And I've done that Mm -hmm. exercise for so many years, and I feel no better about whatever's occupying my mind where I would say, okay, I do not promise to be a better dad, but I ask the Lord to help me be the kind of dad that he made me to be. But I don't promise this anymore. And it's so hard. It's so painful. Yeah, and but 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 I'm but I also wonder in the because I, I I hear the like the feeling the unpromised, but I'm but I'm also wondering, but it doesn't sound nonetheless like a commitment though. No, and that's and the so the the fine line which all of these are so on the on the razor's edge because yeah. it is right that I desire to be a good dad. Yes, but when I use promises, use words to give myself the sense that I've accomplished something. Yes. Now I'm in, I'm in a lot of trouble because I'm yes. practicing. Oh, just I'm, I'm buying on credit. I'm buying action on credit. Yeah. Yeah. So to say, no, I need to stop using these promise words because this is a daily thing. I want to learn how to just daily trust you. There is right behavior and I want to trust you for that and not keep buying it on bullshit word credit. That I, I love the way you say it, because I think essentially what you're saying is, one, stop promising you're not going to fail your kids. Mm-hmm. Like, stop it. But is it more true that most likely, if I'm going to commit to something, I'm more likely to have to commit that I will be a better repenter mm-hmm. towards and, you. And, and to do it one day at a time. What's today yeah. bringing up my kids? Yeah. All right. Well, you guys just exasperated me beyond my point, and I was not the kindest responder in fatherhood, but that was today. So, yes, I repent. I apologize. Now, tomorrow, where are we at? God, let's Well, and and essentially, and and even in my repentance, I think my work with a lot of parents, it's like, yes, you repent, and will you also hold the impact? Um, what happened? I know I've so, I've so many parents like I actually I told you I was sorry. What else do you want from me? 
Well, that's probably not going to get you a lot of trust with your children in the long run. Oh, yeah. You're you're talking about when we use apologies so we don't have to deal with the other person's emotions. If I say sorry fast enough, will you shut up and feel you have no right to say how you still feel? Right. And that covers even what we've been talking about. I, I think when it comes to... Again, those discussions even about race. The, the, I can't tell you. I'm sorry. I, I don't know what to do with that. Yeah. <laughs> is that is that is that to exonerate you? What's what's the I'm sorry? Because there's a lot. You're talking about something that's in the DNA, and I'm sorry. So what now? Mm-hmm. So what, what now? What what now? Wendell Moss, we are so out of time, especially because yeah. I have a meeting that I have to yeah. go walk to from this car. But I am so not done with this conversation, so it's kind of annoying. I've been thinking, can I sneak <laughs> my phone here and text people and say, give me 15 more minutes? So we need to continue this. I need, I don't know that we need to. I would like well, to. I would love, it. I would love to talk with you again. I would love uh, So how do people kind of connect with what you're doing, get in your world? Is there a place they can go or- Place they can yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I do a lot of work with the, you know, I, I work with the, um, I do a lot of work with the Allender Center um, at www.allendercenter.ed.org. So, okay. um, and I'm also a private, I'm a, a therapist in this um, Seattle area. But a lot of times, and um, I'm, if you, if you uh, um, catch the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology and the Allender Center, you'll probably find me there. Okay. Well, listeners, we will be right back. Thanks again, Wendell, for spending this time. So stick around here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. And we are back on the Pirate Monk podcast. Nate, do you want to say something pretending that you've listened to this yet? <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not going to pretend that I've listened to it, but I am going to listen to it as soon as this episode is produced, which is going to be quickly, I hope. Well, I'll just say I, I always love getting surprised and some of Wendell's perspectives were not conversations i had ever had before Mm -hmm. and i will tell you that since yesterday when we recorded that interview i have been thinking a lot about getting curious about my own culture and my own heritage and bringing that into my life and into the lives of my children and helping them to develop a curiosity about their own culture so that they can be curious in a deeper way with other people. Mm. It, was a, it was a transformative conversation on a topic that I really had to, boy, I, I still have more questions. I have a lot of questions, but hey, it got me started. So I hope it was good for our listeners. I hope it was a bit out of the box and went in a direction that was unexpected and that that was a joyful thing. Love to hear from you. Tell us about it. Tell us about your experiences. Yes, please do. And uh, easiest way to do that is just to drop a line to Pirate Monk Podcast at gmail.com. You know, we ought to find a way, Aaron, for guys to to just call in and leave their comments via voice. There's got to be a way to do that. 
There's got to be a way. The fact that we're even asking if there's a way probably has some savvy people rolling their eyes right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And the other thing we got to do, Aaron, is we got to figure out, uh, you're going to have to dress a little better, or uh, we're going to have to figure out how to add some video to the show, too. Oh, well, I don't want to start having to wear pants. <laughs> well, I think that wraps it. Uh, I know that was a long interview. We've probably, uh, you know, somebody who was driving somewhere has been sitting in their car for 20 minutes waiting for the end of the show. <laughs> we might as well let them go in and do what they need to do. So until next time, I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. And we are your pal on the Pirate Monk Podcast. The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com. <laughs>